Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul ministered in Ephesus on the third missionary journey. That's recorded in Acts 18 to Acts 21. The first missionary journey we usually associate with the churches of southern Galatia. The second missionary journey, primarily Corinth, though there were other places, and certainly other places in the third missionary journey, but he spent a bulk of his time in Ephesus. Uh, This took place in about A.D. 53 to 57. The book of Acts ends at about, uh, with Paul in his first imprisonment, and that's about A.D. 60 to 62. So from prison, he writes what we call the prison epistles, and uh, Ephesians is one of them. So I want to read chapter 2, and then our focus is on verses 14 to 18. It's a very dense and tightly packed uh, section of Scripture I will try not to keep us too long or be too tedious, but there is a lot going on in this particular section of Scripture. So beginning in chapter 2 at verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus uh, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father." Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the glorious promise that he will build it and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. 
I thank you for the Surrey Reformed Baptist Church. I thank you for Pastor Mike. I thank you for the deacons that serve the church well. I thank you for all of these brothers and sisters. It truly is a delight to visit this local body. And God, we pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would come upon us. We pray that he would guide us and direct us and lead us into all truth as well. May we appreciate afresh the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners, not only in terms of salvation by grace through faith, but also in this solidarity and this unity, this union that we have together at the throne of grace. Forgive us for all of our sin and unrighteousness. Cleanse us in the precious blood of the Lamb. And we pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, if we look back at Ephesians chapter 1, we'll notice that the apostle praises God. So in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, it's one long sentence wherein he praises God the Father that we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He praises the Father for election and predestination. He praises the Father for the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus, and he praises the Father for the gift of the Holy Spirit. He then moves from praise to prayer, and we see him in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. It's not a prayer per se, but he's letting us in, as it were, to his prayer closet. He wants them to know what he prays for on their behalf. And if you look specifically at chapter 1, verse 19, the apostle Paul wants the people of God to know the power of God. When we understand God's power, when we understand his sovereignty, when we understand his glory, it has a very steadying effect upon the soul. But notice in verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? And then he demonstrates or displays that power in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God exercises that power from verses 20 to 23 by having raised Jesus from the dead. Now, the text continues. We see the power of God in the salvation of individual sinners, according to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. We have that before picture, what you were, verses 1 to 3. You were lifeless, helpless, and hopeless. But God, according to verse 4, who is rich in mercy, with that great love wherewith he loved us, has saved us. We're, we're saved by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stop there. In verses 11 to 22, he demonstrates the power of God in bringing together Jews and Gentiles. Now, for us, this far removed, we don't really understand the discrepancy or the problem. But if you read through the book of Acts, you will see there was a bit of tension. When Gentiles started confessing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, some of the Jews didn't really take too kindly to that. Even though we go all the way back to the oracle of Noah in Genesis chapter 9, and there he speaks of Gentile inclusion in the covenant promises of God. Japheth will find uh, solace in the tents of Shem. And then we see that promise concerning Gentile inclusion developed all throughout the Old Testament. The prophets speak to it. The, the Psalter speaks to it. Jesus, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, according to Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6, will be a light unto the Gentiles. So lo and behold, when Jesus comes and Gentiles start getting saved, it causes a little, a little bristling between the two people groups. So Paul writing to a predominantly Gentile church wants them to understand they're not second-class citizens. They're not just beginners. They're not those who after six months are, are, are imbibing some form of Jewish 
uh, uh, ceremony, they'll become full-fledged members of the household of God. No, God's power is seen not only in the salvation of individual sinners, but in the bringing together of two people groups that were formerly at odds with one another. So that's the context. I want to look specifically at verses 14 to 18, but it does not uh, stand on its own. Basically, what you have in verses 11 to 12 corresponds to what you have in verses 1 to 3. Not trying to confuse everything. I think seeing the structure of passages is very helpful to understand the intention of the passage. So in 1 to 3, before he gets into the salvation of individuals, he shows them what they were prior to God's grace. They were lifeless, helpless, and hopeless. Well, before he opens up the beauty that Gentiles are now included in this covenant promise of God, he tells them what they had been. Notice in verse 11, therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the uh, uh, circumcision made in the flesh by hands. And they weren't called that just as an identifier. Oh, oh, they happen to be uncircumcised. They were called it with a bit of venom. There were three things Jews woke up in the morning and thank God that they weren't. They thank God that they weren't women, Jewish men. They thank God that they weren't slaves. And they thank God that they were not Gentiles. There was animosity. There was a sharp breach between these two people groups. I mentioned to Brother Howie this, uh, uh, this afternoon over lunch. When we started getting hate mail for keeping the church open, one of them was kind of interesting. On our website, it indicated that I was born and raised in Long Beach, California. So somebody wrote to me and said, we don't want your American independence in our country. Open or close your church and basically submit. This wasn't the first time this has happened. I had a fellow stay in my house and he actually confessed to me that he had a very anti-American spirit about him. And I'm thinking, you do know where I come from, don't you? That's just a small bit. The Jews and the Gentiles were separated. So the Jews looked down upon the Gentiles who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Now notice that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So according to verses one to three, individual sinners are lifeless, helpless, and hopeless. Collectively, the Gentiles, apart from the the, the blessings of God, were actually homeless, churchless, hopeless, and godless. But then he highlights the present blessing of Gentile believers in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he goes on to explain how that does take place or how that did take place. And he speaks specifically of two things in verses 14 to 18. First, there is reconciliation with God accomplished by Christ in verses 14 to 17. And then secondly, there is the access to the presence of God attained by Christ in verse 18. So that's where we're going lengthy introduction to get us to the point basically of reconciliation with God accomplished by Christ verses 14 to 17 and then access to the presence of God attained by Christ in verse 18. Now notice in terms of reconciliation he says three things. First he highlights that Christ is himself our peace. He then states that Christ himself made peace and then he says thirdly that Christ himself preached peace to you who were afar off. 
So that's what we have in verses 14 to 18. Notice the Lord Jesus is our peace. He himself is our peace. This does remind us of several passages in the Old Testament. You can turn with me or you can listen to uh, listen as I read. Psalm 72. It's a psalm written by Solomon, but it's concerning day, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, and in uh, Psalm 72 at verse 7, it says, in his days, the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. The prophet Isaiah, in that wonderful statement of, of 9, 6, and uh, uh, 7, refers to Christ as the Prince of Peace. And then Micah, in another prophecy concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can turn there, Micah 5, verse 1. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you one shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, or from the ancient of days he comes. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. So as Paul comes to deal with Gentile inclusion in the covenant promises of God, he says this is characteristic. This is the nature. This is the perfection of our blessed Savior. He himself is our peace. He is the one who offers that peace in John's gospel to his disciples. Not like the world gives you, but I give you a peace that lasts, a peace that abounds, a peace that flourishes, a peace that thrives. If you're not a believer here tonight, you don't have peace. You have chaos. You have confusion. I don't know how you get out of bed every day when you look at the chaos of this particular world. I'm not suggesting you don't. Go ahead, get up, and contribute to society to be sure. But how can you function in a world where there is such lawlessness and rebellion and wickedness without the thought that Christ has all things under control and that he is there for his people and will provide them peace? Justification by faith alone, that central tenet of Protestantism. What does Paul say in light of that in Romans 5.1? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So back to Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle says concerning our blessed Savior, he himself is our peace. But then he moves on to highlight how Jesus makes peace, and he does that in the following section. He says he who has made both one, He's talking again about Jews and Gentiles. There is a system of theology out there that separates Jews and Gentiles. There's a, 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 a system of theology that keeps them as distinct peoples of God. I wonder how persons who adhere to that system of theology can read Ephesians 2. Because the main emphasis of the apostle here is to show that they're not two anymore, but they're one new man created in Christ Jesus. They have solidarity. Everything promised that was given in the old covenant included the Gentiles. Christ is the, the Messiah of Israel, but it's not only Israel that benefits. As I mentioned, the servant songs of Yahweh in Isaiah 42, 49, both at verse 6, I will give you as a light to the Gentiles. In 49.6, specifically, Yahweh says concerning the servant, it's too small a thing for you to simply save the lost tribes of Jacob. That's not a grand demonstration of your power and your glory and your majesty. You fellas wanting to impress your wives or your, or your girlfriends with how much weight you can lift, you don't pick up 30 pounds. You put 230 on that bench and you pump it out. Why? Because 30 is chump change. 
Now, I'm not referring to the lost tribes of Israel as chump change, but you get the point. The Lord God Most High in the sending of the Son of His love wants to magnify Him, wants to manifest Him, wants to demonstrate Him as the glorious Savior of all men, not without exception, but without distinction from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So he brought these two together. He made both one. John Eady said, Gentiles are no longer formally excluded from religious privilege and blessing, and Jewish monopoly is forever overthrown. Jew and Gentile are not changed in race nor amalgamated in blood, but they are one in point of privilege and position toward God. That's his emphasis. You're not second-class citizens. You're not junior Christians. You're not the, the, the sophomore team. You are fully included in the blessing of God. Notice he goes on to say that Christ broke down the middle wall of separation. What does that mean? There was an actual wall at the temple that kept the Gentiles out. There was an actual wall at the temple at the temple that said, or that was uh, uh, maintained, so that Gentiles could not go any further. There was an outer court where they could go, but they could not penetrate behind that particular wall. I think the reference here is specifically the enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile, which was represented in that wall. You're not kept out. You're not in the court of the Gentiles. There's not a special section for you. You're not the bleacher creatures. You get to come. You get to access. And as we move through this passage, that's what's in view here. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Drop down to verse 22. In whom you also, Gentiles, along with Jews, are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. I suspect that Pastor Mike has told you a time or two that the Bible's about temple. The Bible's about tabernacle. That word simply means, or those words simply mean, dwelling. The Garden of Eden was a temple. God dwelt with Adam and Eve. The, the Noah's Ark was a temple. God dwelt with his people there. Obviously, the tabernacle was the place where the Shekinah glory came. And of course, Solomon's temple. And then the rebuilding of the temple after the destruction in, in 586. And so it's all about, not all about, but one of the great themes in Scripture is God being with his people. And that's what I'm going to suggest as we move through this passage. Yes, he's talking about our personal quiet time. When you read your Bible tomorrow and when you pray, you have access to the Father through the Son by the Spirit to be sure. But hmm, what place do you think Paul is specifically referencing when he makes these observations? The church. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's imperfection, there's still sin, there's boring sermons, there's guys who preach too loud, there's, you know, distractions, there's all kinds of things that sort of get in the way. But when we look at the New Testament, when we look at the documents, when we look at the writings, when you look at Paul's description in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the church is what? It's the household of God. In uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the apostle says, you've not come to, to Sinai, to the mountain that, that, that is filled with thunder and lightning, but you've come to Zion. You have come. When you turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, where is Christ to be found? In the midst of the lampstands. What's Paul saying here in Ephesians 2? Christian, Gentile Christian, along with the Jews, you have great privileges abundance of privileges. 
And so I'm going to end later on, not now, you're not that lucky or fortunate, I guess, but I'm going to end later by saying, if God has this structured for the good of weary pilgrims along the way, why would you ever miss it? Why would you ever absent yourself from the house of God, from that place where we come to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit? This is his emphasis. So he made both one. He broke down the middle wall of separation. And then notice he abolished the law of commandments. What does that mean? Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. I take flesh there as a reference, not to the incarnation per se, but to his death having abolished in his flesh the enmity. He goes on to explain that is the law of commandments created in ordinances. The Lord does this at his crucifixion. Now, when we ask the question, does the Lord abolish the moral law? No, he doesn't abolish the moral law. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 was a prophecy concerning the new covenant where God says, I will write my law in their hearts. What law do you think that is? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't have idols. It is that abiding moral law of God. When we come to this passage, what he's talking about is the ceremonial law that kept the, the Gentiles out. It kept the Gentiles from full access into the presence of God. You're reading through the book of Acts on, on your Sunday night readings. You're going to meet God-fearers along the way, a fellow by the name of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He was a Gentile, but he was a God-fearer. What does that mean? It means he was enamored with Israel's God. It means that he would go to temple. It means that he would try to participate it insofar as he could, but there were certain limitations placed upon him by virtue of the fact that he was uncircumcised and that he was a Gentile. See, Paul is saying those days are no more. And what that ceremonial law represented is no more. It wasn't bad. It wasn't wretched. It wasn't horrible, but it was for a purpose. You go back into the old covenant. Why were they forbidden to eat shellfish? Why were they forbidden to mix uh, uh, fibers? Well, it wasn't because it was not necessarily healthy or unhealthy, but it was to separate the children of Israel from the pagans around them. They had a holiness code. They were separate. They were sanctified. They were the people of God. They were not to participate in the same sorts of things. And so that ceremonial law wasn't bad, but it was fulfilled by our Savior and thus abrogated now in this new covenant setting. We're allowed to eat bacon. We're allowed to eat shellfish. We're allowed to mix fibers because we're not the theocratic nation of Israel separate from the pagans around them. That's the law that he's speaking about here. Colossians 2.14, similar emphasis, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And I think the context makes this evident. What's, the de what, what's he dealing with? He's dealing with circumcision and temple access. Those were things that were driven by ceremonial law. It was circumcision under the ceremonial law. Not, there's not a moral law. It's not an 11th commandment, thou must get circumcised. It was temporary for that particular covenant, again, to separate them from the pagans and from the heathen around them. Our confession speaks to this in chapter 19, paragraph 3. You can look that up later. So he makes both one. He breaks down the middle wall of separation. He abolishes the law of commandments. Notice, and then he goes on to say, once again, he created one new man. So as to create in himself, he is the head of the body, one new man from the two, thus making peace. 
So you see, when we have this idea that, you know, we're just in this parenthetical moment called the church age. And after the end of the church age, the church is going to be raptured. She's going to be gone. And then God's prophetic clock is going to get starting to tick again. And then he's going to deal with the Jews. That is to go backwards in redemptive history. It is to read the Bible in a very wrong way. If this is your disposition, if this is your training, talk to Pastor Mike. Hopefully he can root it out of you. I might try in the space of another 20 minutes or so, but there are not two separate peoples of God. There is one new man created in Christ Jesus. He has brought them together such that there is no more disparity. There is no more separation. There's no more room for name calling. You, know, you uncircumcised or this, uh, uh, the, the Gentiles speaking ill of the, uh, of the Jews. So he created one new man in Christ Jesus. And then notice, he accomplishes reconciliation. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So notice in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He comes full circle and in verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. It was through the cross that he shed his blood that brought us into this position, not only in terms of individual salvation, verses four to 10, but in terms of corporate solidarity, Jew and Gentile, all partakers of the same covenant promises of God most high. Paul wants the Gentiles to know they are not second-class citizens. They are not those who are, 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 are kept at bay. They're not lesser. They're not a, a second-tier people, but they have full privilege, full access to the very presence of God Most High in corporate worship. Again, first century, there were tensions. Acts 15. Remember Acts 15? There was a whole council that was convened to deal with this particular issue. You get the Jew mindset or the Jewish mindset. I, I mean, we had to get circumcised. We had to keep the laws of Moses. All these guys have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's all these guys have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that they believe on Jesus plus get circumcised. That's the book of Galatians. The apostle Paul is dealing with that Judaizing tendency in the book of Galatians. So he goes... First missionary journey, visits the churches of Southern Galatia, preaches the gospel to them. They believe, they, they become churches, or they're planted as churches. And then after Paul departs, guess what happens? Guys, probably well-meaning, they probably weren't devils incarnate. They come and they say, you know, what, you, what Paul told you is good. You need to believe on Jesus. He is the Messiah, but you also, you, you need to get circumcised. That's why Paul speaks the way Paul does in the book of Galatians. If righteousness comes through the law, Galatians 2.21, then Christ died in vain. Galatians 5, those of you who put yourselves back in the category of law, you're obligated to keep it all. Paul's point in Galatians is you either bring your perfect righteousness to God or you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus in the sight of God. So this was a hot topic item in the first century. Again, I don't think we see it as prevalent in our own day. We just accept it and assume that there is this solidarity. So he mentions this at the end, he, that he might reconcile them both to God. So individual sinner reconciled to God, but as well, corporate body reconciled with one another. Jews and Gentiles are now friends. Jews and Gentiles are now recipients of the same blessings of God. 
I shared with our church when I preached this material, there was a man by the name of John Jasper. And John Jasper was a black slave in the 1800s plucking tobacco. And he was working in a particular factory. And what John Jasper, what happened to John Jasper is that God saved him. He had heard enough gospel. He's contemplating the gospel. God saves him. Guess what John Jasper did? He started telling everybody else that he was working with, hey, God saved my soul. And, you know, he's kind of making a ruckus, not in a bad way. He didn't pull up a pulpit and start preaching. But, you know, word got to the supervisor. The supervisor calls him in and says, you know, Mr. Jasper, can you tell me what happened? He said, the Lord God saved my soul. I want to tell everybody about Jesus until my dying breath. And the man stuck out his hand, shook his hand and said, welcome to the family of God, brother. And he said, don't stop telling sinners about what Jesus does until your dying breath. Guess what John Jasper went on to do? Preach the gospel. He was a pastor. What he's most known for is that he was a geocentrist. He did not believe that the earth went around the sun, but he believed that the sun went around the, uh, uh, the earth. He was a geocentrist, and he was notorious or known for that. In fact, his biographer, it's written by Hatcher, published by Sprinkle Publications. Hatcher went to one of these services where he was going to preach on the sun, do move, because it's written like a black slave would have talked. And Hatcher said, I went in there convinced he was going to be wrong. I went in there convinced he didn't know what he was talking about. I got to tell you, his power of oratory and his argument had me convinced the other way when I walked out. He also had a very grand view of the extent of God's kingdom. The, 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 the reference to Daniel 2, that small stone that fells the big kingdom and then it becomes the kingdom. He has a very, or he had a very positive understanding of the progress of God's kingdom. But the point is, what was a separation between master and slave was brotherhood because of what Christ had wrought through the cross. So the Lord Jesus is our peace, 14a. The Lord Jesus made peace, 14b to 16. But then notice that the Lord Jesus preached peace in verse 17. This is a bit of a puzzling verse. Acts 19, Jesus didn't go to Ephesus. Remember, if you've ever read the passage, not only does the apostle Paul preach, but then there's a riot that happens. Why is that? Because the idol makers in Ephesus realized, you know, if all these people start to confess faith in this Jesus, they're not going to buy our idols anymore. It was the trade union that said, we got to put the kibosh on this apostle Paul. We got we to silence this guy because we're not going to be able to sell our many you know, replicas of Diana or Artemis. We're not going to be able to fill the temple anymore. So then ultimately, there's a riot in the city. Now, that's not because Jesus was there. How do we deal with verse 17? He, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Now, the near, obviously, are the Jews, and the afar off are the Gentiles. The Old Testament background is uh, Isaiah 52, 7 and Isaiah 57, 19. Now, in his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew chapter 10. He commissioned his disciples to go to those lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew chapter 10. Now, after the resurrection, Jesus commissions his disciples, his apostles, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then to teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what are we supposed to conclude? That when Paul goes to Ephesus to preach the gospel, it's Christ there. 
Now, obviously, that sounds odd and bizarre. I was mentioning again to Brother Howie about the COVID thing. I think they took a clip of me, uh, CBC, and put it on the news where I said, Christ is in the midst of the church. Well, that was Revelation 1. Christ is in the midst of the lampstands. But if you don't understand what I meant, that sounds odd. Hey, that guy in Chilliwack, he's that egotistical. He, he thinks Jesus is actually in his church. Right? That, that, that's how the unbeliever thinks. But when you think in terms of New Testament documentation, when you think about the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, yeah, God wasn't literally present there. He was symbolically present or represented by the Shekinah glory cloud. He's there with his people, blessing and encouraging and strengthening. And so we conclude from this particular passage that when ministers called and recognized by the church, qualified to do their task in light of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, when they do their thing, it's as if Christ himself is preaching to you. Again, a privilege, a benefit, a blessing. Why would we not be present when Christ is preaching? Now, I'm not saying again, hear me out. I don't think I'm Jesus. I really, really don't think I'm Jesus, believe me. But when it comes to this doctrine, turn back to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, I got a little beef with the New King James and the way that they translate. And in Romans 10, I'll read you the way that it's literally supposed to be read. Romans 10 at verse 14. <clears throat> How then shall they call on him, Jesus, in whom they have not believed? The whole point in the previous section is to call on him, right? Look at verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him shall uh, will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call on upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? It means to believe in him. What does it mean to believe in him? It means to call upon the name of the Lord. You see those metaphorical uses for belief in John's gospel. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. He's not endorsing cannibalism. He's talking about receiving him, believing on him. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What, it, what does it go on to say? He says, he who believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Now notice verse 14 again. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe him? whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? See, there's good ecclesiology here, brethren. You can't just, you know, wake up one Sunday morning and say, you know what? I feel called to preach. I'm just going to go preach. I'm going to find a pulpit. I'm going to find a people, and I'm going to plague them with me. You can't do that. Self-appointment is not the New Testament way. The church must recognize, the church must vet, the church must endorse, the church must install or ordain, and then that man should preach. That's what Paul says here. So again, how and how shall they believe him whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You know what you all should pray regularly for is more guys who preach. And if you're a young man, you should consider being a guy that preaches. Now, not the scenario I just portrayed. You wake up on a Sunday morning, I'm going to get a pulpit, and I'm going to go stand out in the middle of the road, and I'm going to yell at people, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
But if you are a young man, somebody reminded me of this lately, we need to be inculcating in our young men that this is a wonderful endeavor, something that is good. If any man desires the office of overseer, he desires a good work. So pray for that. We've got a church plant uh, starting in, in northern Ontario with two faithful, capable, competent men. Pray that God will gift them and grace them and make sure that the people of God see them as being fit and called, if they are, to be separated to that particular work. We live in a world that's, I know it's hard to believe, but very needy. Very, very needy. We live in a day and age where good is evil and evil is good. How do we counteract that? What's our response supposed to be? We're not going to vest up with C4 and walk into populated groups and say, see on the other side. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. And I wonder if the people of God are faithful at the throne of grace, praying for more ministers of the gospel. We want good politicians. Nothing wrong with that. Pray God bless, raise up men who aren't absolute lunatics. They might maybe be fit for the job. But we ought to be praying for our churches. We ought to be praying for men that are called of God, equipped by God, vetted by the church, and sent out to do the task. This is the emphasis in the New Testament. And Paul is able to say, he, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. Now, let's look finally. We've seen the reconciliation with God accomplished by Christ. Look at the access to the presence of God attained by Christ. Notice in verse 18, for through him, through Jesus, we both have access, that's Jew Gentile, by one spirit to the Father. Now, I know Pastor Mike has probably, probably been hitting on theology proper, the doctrine of God, Christology, those things that Christians should believe concerning the Trinity. And I think at times Christians think, you know, there's a couple of passages. I know Matthew 28, the reference to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I, I know 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the, the benediction mentions all three persons. Do you know all three persons are in Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit is brooding over the waters. God creates by the word of his mouth. Psalm 33, 6 understands that as a reference to the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul can't not be Trinitarian. It's kind of like one of those things. You, you've heard the old saying, you can't unsee it, right? You, you see something, it might be something horrifying. You think, I just can't unsee that. Well, Paul can't unsee, and this isn't horrifying, this is glorifying. He can't unsee the Trinity, in chapter one, blessed be the God, uh, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Father elects, predestines. The Son redeems, the Spirit get, uh, seals and guarantees. Trinitarianism. But then notice back to back, verse 18 and verse 22. For through him, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Verse 22, in whom, Christ, you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So the privilege of access to God is obvious, for through him we both have access. See, what's the biggest problem with sin and sinning, or sin and sinners? It's no God, right? That, that, that's what Paul describes as, as being bad in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, lifeless, helpless, hopeless. When he describes the Gentiles, what they were, verse 12, that at that time, you were without Christ. Well, what does it mean to be without Christ? Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
See, the best thing for us is, is God. Now, we don't think that in Adam. We don't think that in our sin. We are like Adam and Eve when they sinned against God. What did they do? They ran from him. He comes to them. Just like in Genesis chapters 11 and 12, the tower builders at Babel, they want to make a a great tower to reach up into the heavens. Well, God easily dismisses that by confounding their lip. But what does God do on the heels of that? Uh, Genesis chapter 12. Come on, Abraham. It's through your seed that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What is one of the recurring anthems or recurring refrains in the covenant promises of God? I will be your God and you will be my people. The book of Exodus ends with tension. Did you ever notice that? They built the tabernacle. At the end in chapter 40, the Shekinah glory of God falls on the tabernacle. He's there. Again, not locally present in terms of a creaturely being, but he is there. That Shekinah glory demonstrates or, or, or symbolizes the presence of God. But no one can go into the house. See, that's tension. That's problem. God's here. It's a dwelling place, but it hasn't yet become a meeting place. It says that even Moses himself couldn't enter in. And Moses was a holy man. Moses was the most humble man on the earth. Moses was a godly man. So what do we do with this tension? The book of Leviticus. Where does Leviticus start? Sacrifice. How do we sinners go meet with this holy God? Through a bloody knife and through a smoking altar. That's how you sinners meet with a holy God. Access to God is everything. It's what we were created for. It's what we're heading to. So look beyond the chaos. Look beyond the the lunacy and the tyranny. Our ultimate resting place is the new Jerusalem, is that dwelling place of God most high. So back to our text, that privilege in and of itself is most glorious, but we shouldn't miss the Trinitarian theology, for through Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So the redeemed sinner comes through Christ. Uh, Stephen Baugh says, faith alone in Christ is the single requirement for entrance into the Father's presence. Notice the redeemed sinner comes through Christ by one spirit. Who's the Holy or who's the Spirit? It's the Holy Spirit. You see that in Ephesians chapter 4. Again, another Trinitarian passage. Look at 4.4. 4. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the redeemed sinner comes through Christ by one Spirit to the Father. Beautiful, isn't it? John Gill makes the observation, this is a considerable proof of a trinity of persons in the Godhead of their deity and distinct personality. And I think it corresponds to Jesus' teaching in John 4, 24. Remember when Jesus is with that Samaritan woman, and he says, those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. I preached that many, many years ago incorrectly. I preached it as spirit, meaning, you know, with your heart and your soul and your affections and, 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 and the truth being the mind. Well, the Bible doesn't make that dichotomy. It, it just doesn't. Not, neither the Old or the New Testament. It's not like I've, you know, I've got this, this mind that's just concrete and that, and then I've got my ushy-gushy sort of affections and heart. That's not what the Bible does. I think it's a tr- reference to the Trinity. He's speaking to a Samaritan woman at, the, at, 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 at a transitory period in redemptive history. Those who come to God must worship in spirit, 
the Holy Spirit, and in truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's the emphasis of the apostle here in verses 18 and 22. So in the Christian church, this is our confession. We're not Jews, like in terms of old covenant. We're not just monotheists. We are Trinitarian through and through. There was an old church father by the name of Gregory of Nazianzen, and he made this observation. He says, this then is my position with regard to these things, and I hope it may be always my position, and that of whosoever is dear to me, to worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, three persons, one Godhead, undivided in honor and glory and substance and kingdom. Amen, brethren. That is a great observation. We want a Trinitarian church, not just because we confess that, but because that is the foundation for our dependence and our communion with God. And we want a Trinitarian church for our children and grandchildren. I wouldn't mind the lunacy and the chaos and the confusion out there so much if I didn't have children and grandchildren. That's one of the driving factors as to why we should do as adults what we do. We should be committed and steadfast to the word of God, to the truth of our confession. Yes, for ourselves and our dependence and and, and communion with God, but for the kids, the grandkids. We want them to rise up and have faithful preachers identified and recognized by the church, qualified to proclaim the truth, and then proclaiming the truth for our benefit and our edification and our strengthening in the faith so that we can deal with the lunacy and with the chaos and with the confusion and not lose our minds. The Lord God Most High has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Yes, Uh, father's election, the son's redemption, and the spirit's seal and guarantee. It's also blessed us with a rich heritage in terms of good reformed theology, and we need to capitalize upon it, and we need to enjoy it. Now, I want to conclude just by, again, reminding you the context, power of God. Chapter 1, verse 19, he wants his hearers to know that. That power is demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus. That power is demonstrated in the resurrection of individual sinners, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And that power is demonstrated in the solidarity that now obtains between Jew and Gentile, one people of God with the same access and with the same privilege. And on that note, I want to end the privileges that the people enjoy. Now, you need to examine your own hearts. I can't do that. I can't come to you later and say, are you enjoying the privileges as the people of God? I would never think to do that. The Holy Spirit is a real person, and he works in the hearts of people. But I want to remind you of some things. Are you thankful for the salvation that you enjoy? That that emphasis in 2, 4 to 10, it's amazing. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. He wants you to appreciate. Look at, look at verse 7 specifically. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, I don't take this as a reference to the age to come, but in the subsequent ages to the apostolic period, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying? He wants the whole church to reflect upon those exceeding riches of grace. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. He wants wants them to function basically as a trophy case to the glory of God, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. I think his point is that when the angels look down upon a group like this, they go, wow, God is glorious. 
right? Those people didn't save themselves. Those people didn't bring themselves to, to Christ. Those people were chosen. They were bled for and raised for, and they had the spirit uh, uh, call them out of deadness into, into life eternal. That's what Paul is saying. We are, as the church, a display case of God's grace. If you win a bowling trophy or you go to somebody's house and you see a bowling trophy on the, the shelf at their house, you don't say, man, what a wonderful trophy. You go, you must be a good bowler, right? These angels aren't looking at us and saying, good on you, Jim. Good for you, brother. I'm glad you put yourself in the right. No, they're saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We need to enjoy our salvation. Secondly, we need to appreciate the unity that we have. And we ought to strive for unity, brethren. Now, obviously, we divide when doctrine is wrong. We don't have any truck with non-Trinitarians or anti-Trinitarians in terms of corporate worship. We can be their friends. We can evangelize them, all that sort of thing. But within the professing church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to be very charitable, very large-hearted, very kind. I try to be. I, I struggle. I've got my issues, to be sure. But, but unity. This is in Jesus' high priestly prayer. What, what, what does he pray to the Father for? Yes, he wants us to be kept by the power of God. He wants us to be sanctified by the truth of God. But he wants us to be one, even as you, Father, and I are one. There is to be unity amongst God's people. Brethren, that is something worth fighting for. Not physically, because that would destroy the notion of unity. And then as well, the access we should utilize. I'm just going to go a couple more minutes. Turn to Hebrews 10 or I'm sorry, yeah, Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> you know, Paul writes, he usually goes doctrine and then application. And I know not everybody believes Paul wrote Hebrews. I happen to, to believe that Paul wrote Hebrews, but whether he did or he didn't, it doesn't, you know, deflect from the point. This is a doctrinal exposition concerning the superiority of Jesus Christ. He's superior to the angels. Superior to the prophets, superior to Moses, superior to Joshua. He is the, the, the yea and amen of God. All the promises of God are, are yea and amen in him. So superiority of Christ. And he spends a lot of time from chapters 5 to 10 to develop Christ as the, the high priest, the, the, the superior priest over the Levitical system. Aaron and, and his companions and that succession of Levites, they always had to atone for their own sin first. And, and then they would go on that day of, uh, of atonement. They'd go in and they'd come out. But at the end of chapter 10, or toward the end of chapter 10, he says, Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. You didn't do that in the tabernacle or temple. If you were the high priest and you went in there on the day of atonement, you didn't sit down. You didn't just hang out. There was no chill time. But Paul emphasizes that. He sat down. What does that mean? One of the emphasis of the book of Hebrews is the finality of his sacrifice. There's no duplication. There's no replication. There's no Roman mass. We don't re-crucify the Lord of glory. No. Then he gets practical in verses 19 and following. Notice chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching." 
Now, one of the reasons why I take Pauline authorship is right here, faith, hope, love. This is the Pauline triad, right? Faith, hope, love. He talks about faith, hope, love. I don't think that's just foreign. I don't think he's just making that up to imitate the apostle. But there's three exhortations. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider one another. And when he mentions or emphasizes not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What is that day? It's not the final day. And I, Pastor Mike might disagree with me here, and that's okay. I'm not going to fight about it. I take it as the day that Jerusalem would fall, the day of destruction, AD 70. So what does that mean? They knew there was impending doom in their future, and yet they were told to still come to church? Don't you know, Paul, that the, the, the city and the temple are going to be desecrated and destroyed by the Roman armies? And, and you want to emphasize don't miss church? Yeah, that's exactly what I want to emphasize. What do we need in times of national calamity? What do we need in times of disaster? We need the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, brethren. We don't want to miss the access that we have with God or with one another. One more passage. You can turn back to 1 Samuel 26. I, we really will end here. 1 Samuel chapter 26. The other things we should be happy about is the preaching we should attend to or, or the privileges of the people of God, the preaching we should attend to and the triune God we confess. So if you're taking notes, you've got five points there. But I'm still focused on this access we should utilize. And there's a lesson here from King David of Israel. Now, remember King David of Israel. He had such a pleasant life. Everything always went well for him. It was just great. He used to just lay around and drink bevies and, you know, command his troops. No, in chapter 24, he has a run-in with Saul. Saul wants to kill him. Chapter 25, he has a, a run-in with uh, literally a knucklehead, a fool, a guy by the name of Nabal. And then in chapter 26, he has another run-in with Saul. He could end Saul's life, but he doesn't. He could end Saul's life, but he doesn't. He even indicts Abner. Abner, you let your boy almost get killed. What are you doing? Aren't you man enough to protect your charge? But then David communicates with Saul. And he says something that is just astronomically beautiful. Verse 17, we pick up with David and Saul. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, is that your voice, my son, David? Big change of heart, huh? He knew he could have just been killed. And now it's my son, David. It's not like throwing javelins at him anymore. It, it is my voice, my Lord, O King. And he said, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? You, you get David, right? What are, you, what, what are you trying to kill me for? I, I didn't do anything. I, I'm, I'm you know, just trying to be faithful, do what God called me to do. So you, you get the ethos, you get the feeling of his heart. Why, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. David understood sovereignty. David understood when Shimei cursed and Benaiah wanted to take off his head. Oh, no, that's of the Lord. I, I deserve this. So that's what he says to Saul. I'm on the run right now, like a dog being hunted. But, but if it's of the Lord, then, you know, perhaps I can make an offering and, and sort of settle this because I don't want to be on the run. But then notice what he goes on to say. He says, but verse 19b, if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. In other words, if it's advisors to you, Saul, if there's an animus against me and they're putting thoughts in your head, just may, may the Lord curse them. But notice the rationale. Notice his reason. 
before. They have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. What's he saying? He knows that God is omniscient. He knows that God is not a localized deity in Israel, but he does know that God gave the people of Israel the land by by gift. It's an inheritance. And he also knows that God has chosen to dwell with his people in that land. And so for David to be excluded from from the land was in a sense to be told, go serve other gods. Right? That, that's what he says in verse 19. If it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. You don't get Yahweh. You're out. And then notice what he says in verse 20. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth, notice, before the face of the Lord. So in the land, it was as if it was the face of the Lord. It was before. Now, brethren, that's a pretty significant passage and a pretty big argument as to why he didn't want to have to leave Israel. Now, we'll oftentimes not come to church for reasons that I don't get. And this isn't me putting on my pastor hat, wanting to harangue people. I hate this part of it. I really do. There is a, I get to-ness about corporate worship. There really is. I, I get to go to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Yeah, you get that. But there's also an oughtness, uh, mustness, uh, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves togetherness. And to remind people of that, you kind of feel like the heavy, but somebody needs to do it. Now, I want to quote a man by the name of Dale Ralph Davis on this passage. We will end here, I promise. He said, David, or didn't David know what every enlightened Christian knows? That you can pray and commune with God anywhere? Apparently, the writer of Psalms 63, 139, and 142 was well aware of that. But David was more enlightened than many enlightened Christians. He knew that to be cut off from Yahweh's inheritance, verse 19, was to be cut off from Yahweh's face, verse 20. That when one had left Israel, there was no possibility of public worship. This is not the place to sketch a biblical theology of worship. Suffice it to say that David would have made a poor space-age evangelical. He would have never been content with his study Bible, prayer list, and a quiet cave. And may I add, a Zoom church worship service. Yahweh's face or presence was especially seen in the sanctuary, Psalm 63, 2. Yet David was being driven away and cut off from tabernacle and sacrifice, from priest and festival. He was being shut out of the land and sanctuary where Yahweh met with his people. To be cut off from the ordinances of public worship is David's most severe grief. Would that cause me anguish? Christians have surpassed David in privileges, but few have approached him in appetite. Again, don't want to harangue anybody, don't want to bludgeon anybody, but examine yourselves. We have access to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Yes, you're going to have that tomorrow morning. Yes, you're going to have it on Thursday night. Yes, you're going to have it on Friday and Saturday when you open your Bible and you listen to the Lord and you speak to the Lord. You have that. But when Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, he's writing to the Ephesian church. 
and he is amplifying the reality that we see in tabernacle, that we see in temple, that we see come to full fruition in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and did what? He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You get to do that every Sunday, again, with imperfection, again, with distraction, again, with wandering thought, with loud preaching, with long preaching, with defective preaching. You're going to have to endure some things that, that no earthly human should ever have to do. Just kidding. But this is the place where God is pleased to visit his people in public. And we ought to thank him and praise him for it and imbibe the ethic of David in Psalm 122. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Why? Because I need the Lord. I need his people. And I get to do that on his day. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for the privileges and the blessings that you have given to us, very, un, uh, very needy, very unworthy sinners. We thank you for redemption through grace or by grace, through faith in our blessed Savior. And we thank you for that reconciliation that he wrought out on the cross and that access now that we have purchased by our Savior. Help us to think through these things and help us to capitalize upon the blessings and the benefits that you have given to us. And again, I pray you bless this church richly. It's a joy to be here. I pray that it would be uh, continued uh, faithful and persevering and that you'd bless our brother, Pastor Mike, and just grant him the grace that he needs to labor faithfully in the word and doctrine. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.